Almost since the beginning of recorded history, there have been references to a particularly, particularly pernicious illness. You can find it described on the papyri of ancient Egypt and in the medical writings of early civilizations in India and China. The Greeks gave it a name we still use today that means passing through because it causes you to suffer an unquenchable thirst. But no matter how much water you drank, your body wasted away. And within months, death inevitably followed. By the early 1900s, we began to establish wards for those suffering from this terminal illness. Doctors were by then on the way to using the name we know today, type 1 diabetes. In these wards, the children, tweens, and teens were starved of food to limit the sugars accumulating in their blood. But even then, sooner or later, they were overcome by diabetic coma and death. Then something dramatic happened. Scientists figured out how to prepare an insulin that patients could use. And suddenly, a disease that had always been a death sentence became a chronic but treatable condition. I'm very thankful we live in the age of insulin. My husband is a type 1 diabetic. He would not be here, and consequently, my children would not be here. Things have changed in such recent history, in recent memory, that my mom, upon finding out that I, at the age of 21, was very interested in someone who is diabetic, warned me off of the relationship <laughs> to save me the heartache. Little did she realize that at 21, all I heard was, I need to move fast. <laughs> Can you imagine that day in 1921 in a diabetic ward? where the children languished, desperately thirsty, weak, and emaciated. And then the ward received insulin. It said that the healthcare professionals went down the beds administering injections. 15 minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes later, the children's eyes cleared and brightened. Children unable to be roused were waking up. I like to imagine what it might have been like for a nurse coming on the next shift or the janitor coming the next day to see empty beds or to hear the once quiet place of convalescence filled with laughter and chatter. Part of the reason stories like these matter, why they hit us where we live, is because they invite us into the real world of possibility. They invite us into a reality where the inevitability of something is challenged. It's easy to believe that nothing ever changes, that at most the can is kicked further down the road. We had the war to end all wars, and then there was a second world war, cold wars, brutality, mental health crises, global warming, Russia and Ukraine. 
With very little effort, Billy Joel can do a whole new version of We Didn't Start the Fire. In the movie Palm Springs, Andy Samberg's character, Niles, is, I think, a picture of the kind of despair we can slip into. He is stuck in a Groundhog Day-type situation where the same day repeats over and over again. When Niles doesn't see a way out, he succumbs to a meaningless existence, maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The only thing he cares about each day is that he doesn't die slowly in the ICU. Just for a second, let me compare Groundhog Day with Palm Springs. You might not have seen either, but you get the premise. The day keeps repeating. Groundhog Day taps into our early 90s optimism. Bill Murray's character goes on a moral hero's journey where throughout these days that are repeated, he eventually decides to better himself and betters the lives of those in the community. Palm Springs, on the other hand, taps into our 2020s resignation. Niles the Nihilist has no such journey. After thousands of iterations of this day, he hasn't really changed at all. He has his fun, but he lives only because he has no other choice. In his book, The Way of Grace, the Reverend Glandian Carney reflects on the different graces he has experienced alongside the many sufferings since his diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. On a chapter on hope, he tosses out seven possible reasons people might be hopeless. Friends, the past several years of life in our country and world allow me to check five of the seven for everyone in this room. That's without even considering the particular difficulties of your personal life, your health, relationships, jobs, or any prior suffering. Five out of seven. Niles, us in this room, our world, we need intervention. We need the inevitable to be challenged. We need hope. N.T. Wright says, hope is faith looking at the future. Hope is something we believe about the future. It's our eyes fixed on an unseen but good reality. It is hard sometimes to look at the future and see the good. Or rather, it's hard to look at the future and see the good apart from miraculous intervention, even if we believe in such things. It's kind of no wonder we're taken in by miracle solutions. Special diets and supplements, some of which I'm sure are good. The promise of a particular law being passed that might truly see the homeless housed or helped in some way. The spring cleaning and organizing that might finally allow us to live our best lives the new routine or book on habits that will produce in us the dependable, deliverable good we desire. We are a nation of optimizers and maximizers. And even though we've had our hopes dashed, we don't stop hoping. We as humans need hope. In the comedy series Arrested Development, Tobias and Lindsay, a married couple on the rocks, are considering having, essentially, approved affairs and open marriage. 
Tobias is a therapist and says he has recommended this to a number of clients. Lindsay asks, does it ever work? To which Tobias replies, oh no, it never does. <laughs> These people, they somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but, but it might work for us. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, their solution, and in fact, many of our own, lead us only to darker places. And yet we hope for different. We hope for more. Our hope is not for continuity. It's not that we think, if only the train stayed on the tracks. The problem is, the tracks lead only to predictably bad ends. We need the train to jump the tracks. And not only to jump the tracks, because that does not end well, but to jump the tracks and somehow miraculously land on another set of tracks, tracks that lead to goodness. In our world's history, this kind of hope, this promise of jumping to new tracks was the story of Jesus. Ancient documents chronicling eyewitness testimony have Jesus saying the time had come and that God was enacting his rule. He was intervening. Jesus not only said there was another way for the world to be, he demonstrated it. He healed. He welcomed. He forgave. He commanded people and nature. He broke the laws of religiosity and bent the laws of physics. He created matter. People saw the intervention of God with their own eyes, felt it in their bodies, reckoned with it in their relationships and finances and community. And many of these men and women threw in their lot with Jesus, said they too wanted to jump the tracks to whatever reality he was living in. For them, the invitation to follow Jesus was not just another habit to add to the list of things that might make our lives 2% better, but an opportunity to enter entirely into a whole new way. His compassionate authority, his genuine love for others, his command over the brokenness and chaos in their midst was compelling. So they followed him to Jerusalem, ready to declare him king. Despite what Jesus had plainly said to him, his followers were completely, painfully surprised at his crucifixion, at his death. They braced for the jump, and then it ended as it always does. In the words of Hamilton's King George, oceans rise, empires fall. But that's not the story of Easter. The story of Easter is that the tomb is empty, the train has jumped miraculously onto a new track. Jesus is bodily raised, full of life, and it is glorious. Like the harvesting of insulin, there is a before and after date on the calendar in which our world has changed. And while there is much that still needs the intervention of God, at Easter, we have been given the hope we need. In the passage from Luke, this message of hope is being given and passed on. 
We watch as Jesus' followers receive the news and have all different but understandable reactions. Consider the women. They are devastated that someone they loved, someone who had bestowed upon them dignity, agency, and healing, had been brutally, shamefully, unjustly executed before their eyes. In their grief, they prepared spices and readied themselves to show final care and honor to Jesus' body. I love that they have this encounter with the angels that is clearly upsetting. And yet, it seems in their passage, the biggest aha, along with the resurrection, the emphasis is that they remembered Jesus' words. The revelation is less the presence of angels and their clothes like lightning, and more that they hear clearly, again, and yet for the first time, that Jesus told them of his death and resurrection. The plan had not failed. The plan was still on. In their book, Reconciling All Things, Emmanuel Katongali and Chris Rice write that the training in Christian hope doesn't start with results. It starts with remembering. Sometimes it's easy to come to an Easter service with the hope that the music and the flowers, the pretty clothes, do the trick and give us some uplift, some tingly feelings of hope. I enjoy those. Rather than seeing these things as a reflection of hope, we are tempted to see them as a source, as some kind of magic eye poster that if we look at it just right, we too can feel in on the secret. It's all going to be okay. Let's go eat ham. But to remember Jesus' words, to remember that this is a part of the plan, is to remember what the plan is. The plan is to overthrow the rule of sin, the rule of death in this world. The plan states of the curse of death, of oppression, of brokenness, of decay, is no longer the ultimate inevitability for those who would throw in their lot with Jesus the inevitability becomes life, becomes renewal, restoration of all things. In the words of our Old Testament reading, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Insulin, as life-saving as it is, merely staves off the inevitable. It is ultimately no match for death. The resurrection says death is no match for the life of God. Death cannot forever stave off the just and right rule of God. Death cannot forever stave off life abundant here in our bodies, mine and yours. Rekindled in hope with Jesus' words ringing in their ears and the sight of the empty tomb and angels The women shared this revelation, this amazing news about Jesus, with some of his closest friends. I don't know if you have ever tried to verbally give hope to someone who is deep in grief, but there are a thousand ways it can go wrong. (laughs) The women have been charged with these words of hope, not as outsiders offering platitudes, 
but as the insiders offering revelation. And even then, the other apostles find this unbelievable. Their words seem to them like nonsense. In the Book of Common Prayer, there is a prayer for mission that references the hard wood of the cross. I don't think they're talking about oak versus pine. There is something about pain and grief that makes everything feel hard. The charm that might have softened the way your mug feels in your hand has suddenly fled. It's a cold, hard mug. When you are in grief, the hardness, the baseness of the world is inescapable. The women come with talk of hope and life, with beauty and glory, and the words sound like nonsense to these grieving apostles. But this, friends, is where the resurrection shines. The physicality of that grief, the hard wood of the cross, in Easter is not met by an ephemeral hope, not met with an idea or a spiritualized ecstasy, but is met with Jesus' body, with flesh and bone. The physicality of death is met with the physicality of life. In the poetry of John Updike, the cell's disillusion reversed, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindled. The same hinged thumbs and toes of Jesus, the same valved heart that, having been pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might. The disciples will soon touch the risen Jesus, his body that was in the tomb, but also made new, recreated. You may be in a place where Easter words sound like nonsense in the midst of your pain. It may sound like nonsense in the midst of a world that feels stuck in the same violent patterns. You may have tried to believe a different world could exist, only to be disappointed. Maybe you believe a different reality exists, but for some reason you feel cut off from it. I hope today that you see in these disciples and their response that you are not cast out of this story. These apostles who in this moment in their pain did not believe are now those we look to as examples of the faith. They would give their life for Jesus. You are not cast out of the good news of Jesus' resurrection. You are invited in as they were. It's here we turn to Peter. We read that he got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself, what had happened. Running was considered undignified for grown men of this culture. When we read in Jesus' parable that the father runs to the prodigal son, it is this sense that the father's love for his child gives zero cares for how he looks. 
Peter here, still numbered among those for whom the words sound like nonsense, got up and ran. Back in Advent, Father Peter mentioned his soft spot for videos of deployed parents returning to their children. Those get me too, but my kryptonite is videos of hearing impaired and of babies getting their cochlear implants turned on. These little ones who have never heard their parents' voices and these videos therein capture the tender first moments when their parents speak. The facial expressions on the baby cycle through shock, joy, and sadness over and over as tearful parents say, I love you. I'm your mama. I'm your dad. You read on the baby's small, surprised faces feelings of deep happiness mixed with grief. And while these implants are deeply good, it is also profoundly jarring to go from not hearing to hearing. The videos I love are cherry-picked and posted and appear on my feeds because of their positive resonance. But this is not how it always goes. At least half the time when an implant is turned on, the child is not able to access joy, only terror. It is scary and confusing and disruptive. Often they try to tear the implants out. The words of the women that Jesus is risen, that the inevitability has flipped, these are hard to hear words. That there is a powerful God who has made himself known and lays claim to all creation, including you, and calls you to new life in him, to be a part of his kingdom, his new creation, is new so big and frankly inflammatory that we might want to rip it out. The good news of Easter, yes, threatens poverty and oppression, sin and brokenness. Hallelujah. But that means the resurrection also threatens wealth and power. It threatens the things we think we have managed or the brokenness we've made peace with. What is remarkable about Peter is he has allowed himself to, in the midst of all of this, in an undignified, embodied way, doubt his version of the story. He hadn't quite placed his hope in the resurrection, but he moved himself, not just his mind, but his whole self, to a place where he could find out the truth, however disruptive. His actions say, I don't know what this means, but I have to find out. I cannot help but admire his consistent, if clumsy, courage. What about us this Easter? How might we respond to the message of hope, to the proclamation that Jesus is risen? For some of us, this hope feels near and full of joy. And for others of us, it might feel far, and it might be a discipline to engage. Both are welcome. Wherever you are, take heart from these saints who first received the news. Like the women, remember the words of Jesus, Behold, 
I am making all things new. Like the apostles, let the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, the fact he has mass, he has weight, he's alive and well, let that speak into the places of grief and doubt. Like Peter, take a step toward knowing the story, toward knowing God. Clumsily and courageously, allow this Easter news to disturb your life and provoke your allegiance. In ways big and small, all these responses will be present later in our service as we participate in communion. You will have an opportunity to come clumsily forward. You get to hold the weight of the bread and the wine. You get to hear and remember the words of Jesus in our liturgy that he has offered himself, that you and that our world might participate in his resurrection life. Church, let us keep the feast and draw near to the living, risen God. Together, let us live lives of remembrance that in Jesus, the inevitable end is no longer death, but life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.